Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, I am your host Rituparna Padgiri on New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Today I am going to be in conversation with Jagriti Gangopadhyay, the author of the book Culture, Context and Aging of Older Indians, Narratives from India and Beyond, published in 2021 by Springer Nature. Dr. Jagriti Gangopadhyay has a PhD from the Indian Institute of Technology, IIT Gandhinagar, Currently, she is an assistant professor at the Manipal Center for Humanities, Manipal. Jagriti, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad that you could make it. Thank you so much, Rituparna. And I'd also like to thank New Books Network, as well as my host, Dr. Rituparna Padgiri, for this huge opportunity. Right. So uh, let me begin with a very common question. Uh, What was your inspiration behind the book? What inspired you to write this book? Um, yeah, I think that that is a very important question, and uh, it's I think a good time for me to really look back. Uh, well, I started writing this book during the first phase of the lockdown uh, because I had time, and also I had uh, you know you know someone to look after my child, my husband, and we were there with uh, my extended family, so there were a lot of people to look after the child, and uh, so. Uh, and my family members really motivated me to write the book, to convert my PhD thesis into a book. My father primarily who uh, went on telling me that, you know, it is very important that I convert this. I had individual papers, but he also thought that I should narrate about my field experiences. And uh, that is very important because, um, you know, the, he's, he felt that that is something that would also help me contribute to the discipline. And uh, same, uh, my husband also really motivated me and he constantly pushed me that I should, you know, like it is also so important to write, you base your thesis, your book on, first book on your thesis, that way continuity will also be there. So both of these reasons basically were the main guiding factors, you know, to convert my book into a thesis, my thesis into a book, sorry. Right. So you've talked about your personal inspiration. Could you also say something about your academic, uh, you know, inspiration uh, motive behind writing the book? Yes, you're right. Actually, I should have added that when you asked initially. Um, Well, honestly, when I was, uh, I thought of converting the book, uh, uh, when I started writing the book, there were two factors. One, I felt uh, in in our discipline, broadly, sociology, social gerontology, there, were a, there was a dearth of literature on comparative studies between different countries. And uh, in general, you know, comparative studies also as a concept, I felt needed uh, more expansion. So I really wanted to expand that narrative. And my book is a comparison of aging practices across the globe in different parts of the globe. Primarily, of course, India and Canada, but I've also touched upon policy. And in addition to that, this comparative perspective, I also felt uh, the urban story of aging across the globe needs to be told because 
there is a lot of literature on the rural you know aspect of aging growing old and the challenges and the problems urban not just india but urban older people generally have been neglected in media scholarship so i also wanted to tell their story hence that was one of the reason why i wrote this book and uh, finally i also felt that uh, there i needed to write about my field experiences and uh, this is why methodology plays a very important part in this book because i i myself as a researcher felt that you know uh, i will be read a lot of important textbooks and also uh, a lot of field driven books uh, with regard to methodology in india but the problem is that again you know rural there's slightly rural based and there's slightly more objective in nature this subjective intersection and the of the researcher and how he or she interprets the field is missing so i also wanted to so because of all these factors these factors inspired me to write the book right so one of the methods that you have used extensively is multi-sided ethnography if i'm correct right so uh, what were your field sites and some of the other research methods that you have used in your book also i would also uh, like to know what was your experience of conducting this research in very geographically diverse locations yeah well <laughs> this is this is a very very long question it might take some time so um, i primarily used um, semi structured questionnaires in all my field areas and i conducted in depth narrative style interviews which uh, the target was 1 1 1/2 hours but it actually went on for hours 2 to 3 hours and uh, sometimes they never rendered i but i never did more than one interview a day i uh, because i particularly wanted to go back with the interview think about the interview while making notes while listening to the recordings i really wanted to you know feel the interview i just didn't want to do the interview and see my data as data i wanted to really understand and interpret the data as well so i uh, which is, and i also wanted to reflect on the multiple dialogues i had with the respondents and one of the biggest experiences that i had across uh the field was that there were you know interaction so we go with the understanding and objective that we will ask our questions and come back but it never happens like that i also was asked many personal questions initially i was offended then i kind of understood gradually that if i am asking them so many personal questions they also have the right to ask me personal questions i need to give them this intrusive space in my life as well and i just cannot come across as this researcher who is there to collect information and go and that way i felt that uh, you know i will not be able to do justice to my data either and uh, also before i begin my primary began my primary data collection i always do pilots like i test my questionnaire and i want to see whether it's making sense it, and you know and all of these actually i learned a lot from my pilot studies also where uh, i got very good feedback for my questionnaire and it was tested and i also uh, like learned how to really ask uh, you know difficult questions in the sense because i was asking about uh, later life uh, experiences and one thing that i needed to understand about how older people think about death so honestly i had a very direct question do you think about death in that sense you know and 
much later on with my pilot, I tweaked that question about, you know, what is your biggest fear? Because when one is young and one is starting out in a PhD, one doesn't really know uh, how to go about it. I was also uh, naive in that sense. So this is this was some of my biggest learnings on the field. To answer your question about multi-sighted, I think each field has had its own experiences, you know, and one can really go on. But uh, I will just break it down. The family, I think, uh, in terms of setting, it was, um, you know, of course, more welcoming, but also careful because I was included in interviewing so many different family members one at a time with different questionnaires. Uh, they were very curious. Uh, and, uh, and I think the biggest takeaway from the family interviews was that they were, uh, you know, very helpful, but also initially there was slight hesitation and rapport building took much more time because I was exploring intergenerational uh, relationships within different family members. Institutionally, I think um, uh, the older people were most forthcoming with their responses and they were uh, very eager to tell me about their experiences, in, you know, residing in elder care institutions. And it still is a very new concept in India. So they were very keen to tell me why and how they were navigating this space. But yes, uh, one of the biggest challenges I faced was with permissions. And that took a while. And, uh, you know, I was also um, really given very little time to do my data collection. And uh, initially, I was told I would be monitored. And then, you know, after much persuading what's I given complete freedom to do the interviews on my own so so yeah so that the, those in the institution in itself it could became you know like a, a sort of a barrier and uh, in my diaspora I think uh, you know I generally was very well welcomed and uh, because I myself was from India I was interviewing older Indians which settled they really took very good care of me and uh, interviews were definitely converted into extensive meals and I also really was given a lot of additional information so in the diasporic setting I think my biggest challenge was that of filtering because I had so info so much information so huge uh, you know like the data set became so huge that I really didn't know which one to leave out and which one to kind of keep so so these were some of the you know major experiences that I had on the field. Thank you sounds very very interesting so now a question, you know, related to the content of your book. I would like to know how cultural practices and contextual factors help in shaping the subjectivities as well as variations that are involved in the process and experiences of aging. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll go back a little bit, you know, in the literature review and... Uh, when I started uh, doing research for my uh, thesis, I realized that we have a very um, one-dimensional perspective of growing old, not just in India, I would say, but across the globe. So, for instance, in India, the general idea is that older people are vulnerable, they are frail, and they are dependent. And just opposite to India, like this, this is a similar narrative in South Asia. Uh, in uh, different countries like Japan and China, there is a little bit different narrative of how the country population is generally aging, and they ha and you know the children have come up with different forms of caregiving arrangements because fil filial uh, ties, filial piety, continues to be the cultural domination of those countries. And 
not not in the west uh, in the west like for instance particularly north america there it is characterized by successful aging you know like you know everybody has to age very age, aging means you have to be healthy you have to be active you have to be productive unless you really fall into those goals and norms you don't really age well and there's also a lot of pressure to age well so i i really felt that while these were very important contributions and detailed studies i also felt that these are you know a very imposed narrative of aging and aging definitely is much more than that it is not just one kind of an experience of homogeneous experience we cannot say that two older people age the same way it is so diverse it is so different while one might adopt active aging one might just choose to you know age peacefully uh, adopt religion and and the other problem in india is of primarily in institutional settings older people are coerced into being religious you know like you have to uh listen you have to really ab- absorb religion because that is how you will gradually come closer to death so one is also really coerced into a particular way of aging so how i really wanted to understand that and explore and that was also my major argument that our own cultural practices and belief systems play a very big role in shaping our later life experiences and however these cultural practices are also marked by external factors such as globalization so for instance i saw particularly because i was to meet in the urban areas so you know like people in delhi and uh, you know like the really urban metropolitan spaces they really they are they would like to adopt active aging for example you know and they are very pro on social media they 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 don't even they don't really see themselves to be old and they are, and they they really uh, would like to remain fit and active as long as possible but similarly relatedly there is another side of narrative in india you know as a country that people are eager to talk about death people want to be a part of religious activities they want to be viewed as traditional kin keepers so in both the countries context canada as well as india i felt there was a huge balance of both the narratives people wanted to age successfully as well as people wanted to uh you know also grow old and understand the different uh nuanced experiences of later life then i also saw the other interesting thing about gender that actually with uh, as age uh, uh with age people also have very different expectations from older spouses and uh, of course i saw that you know in despite my being in a very urban setting caregiving arrangements uh, older men continued to expect caregiving responsibility from their older spouses and not really from their adult children that was a marked difference from my western experience where i saw that both men and women knew they had to be independent and uh, rely on you know other paid caregiving services and not on their spouses or on their adult children so that was the major difference that i saw but apart from that i uh, i generally felt that cultural practices you know that how what the different kinds of traditions we are brought up with or the different cultural practices that we are taught right from we, when we are uh, we are children or our different religious norms all of these things actually play a very crucial role in shaping our aging processes and aging is a subjective process it, it is not really uh, a, a homogeneous process all right absolutely uh, you use pierre bodieu's idea of capital to understand aging i would like to know more about how you you know apply this concept and what are some of these interesting insights that you discovered in your field yeah yeah yes uh, i do use uh, bordu's uh, concept of uh, social capital and uh, i primarily used it 
in uh, the context of uh, my uh, when I was uh, do, doing my field work in Delhi. Uh, in you know uh, the my Delhi chapter actually looks at both those uh, theory of social capital. So I'll just briefly talk about. So uh, how I used Bordeaux was I explained that you know, the different forms of capital, cultural, social, and economic. And uh, as Bordeaux says that uh, social capital really helps particular members of a group to grow and connect with each other. So uh, what I found was that in Delhi there was this huge narrative of global aging, and they, uh, uh, the 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 older people were very, very active on different social media websites. And so I, uh, by using Bordeaux's capital, my most important finding was that because everybody in their age group was active on social media, hitting the gym and, or, you know, remaining active and fit and following different forms of dietary practices that was being used in, across the globe, they just didn't want to come across as you know, Indian older people, but they wanted to be seen as aging and, you know, in their process of aging, that they are adopting global practices. So they probably, for example, most of them said that uh, they follow Kim Kardashian and uh, Victoria Beckham. And, you know, like they were following international figures because they believed that those people were really the epitome of, you know, uh, uh, you know, like they were aging gracefully and, and they were uh, they were the role models. So because of that and because everybody in their group was doing that and because social media played such a big role in shaping the entire process of aging, I have used both those social capital to explain that how being a member of a particular group who, you know, kind of induces a particular way of growing old. So that was my main contribution. Okay. So uh, could you also give some examples of how class, gender and age intersect from your research in both India and Canada? Yeah. So um, actually, honestly, I didn't look at class. I didn't look at class because uh, I looked at uh, one particular type of class and that was uh, the middle class, the upper middle class. But uh, I'll just broadly uh, give you, uh, you know, a narrative of uh, like how generally class and age work. So one of the biggest differences is that in India, people, mostly the people I interviewed, some of them had pensions, but most of them also had personal savings. And personal savings was the main resource of, you know, financial resource that they had. And they kind of received little benefits from uh, remittances from their adult children. That was not the main source of financial resources for them in later life. So class-wise, one of, I think, the reason a lot of people could choose to become independent in India was because they had financial stability. They weren't really dependent on their adult children because legally, even today, the law really uh, states that uh, one it is the responsibility of the adult children to look after older people, older, their older parents. And uh, there is a lacuna in terms of, you know, like what about childless older people and others who have lost their children, all of that, that, that there is a gap. But uh, my, my main point also was that because these older people uh, have sufficient savings or, or they are pension holders, uh, they are not really that dependent on their children. So they could choose to, like, for instance, I have highlighted this in my Kolkata chapter, that a lot of older people particularly chose to remain alone and not stay with their uh, adult children. Instead, they choose to, you know, uh, uh, live with in their later life with memory 
and the loss of their partner and they wanted to live just within the city of Kolkata. The city also played a very crucial role. They could afford to do that because they were financially independent. So I think class in that sense plays a very big role. Of course, I did not do a cross-class comparison, you know, across different class groups, even in the urban setting. I And, and I have to admit that. But I have to say that class did play a very significant role in this context because uh, this financial stability played in with age. In Canada, uh, they have a huge state support and that actually plays a very big role. Like the fact that they don't really have to depend on their spouses or they don't have to depend on their adult children, or for that matter, they don't have to really depend on anybody is because the state support is very, very huge. And because of that, and also the uh, the retirement age is also, you know, five years ahead. When I was doing my interviews, like 65 for, the, for Canada and 60 for India, that also made a lot of difference. And because of these, uh, because of that state support there, well, my Canada citizens were more, uh, you know, upper middle class as opposed to my citizens back in India. And their financial stability was very, very high. And that gave them a huge sense of independence. And, and that, I think, is very important, as, if, you know, if I had done a class comparison. Gender, uh, it, was, it was a huge marked difference. And, you know, like as I said earlier, that gender norms continue to exist in the Indian setting. And that is across, like even though I explored global aging in Delhi, most of the older males told me that they want their older spouses, their female spouses, to look after them as they grow older. And the female spouses primarily told me that they would have to rely on paid caregiving or elder care residences. They can't expect their male spouses to look after them because they're not even trained. So that, that kind of an expectation was missing. And this expectation that older female spouses will look after older male husbands was uh, was omnipresent across India, like all the field visits I had in India. That, that was a narrative that I had. In fact, in elder care residences, a lot of the older men had shifted to residences because their spouse had passed away and they had no other option. So it, that, that gender thing was very huge. Of course, in contrast to this, in Canada, the older women were very independent. All of them knew driving and they, were, they took their own decisions. They, was, they actually chose to live alone. And uh, they would definitely not provide uh, later life care to their older spouses. Like there was a sense of independence across gender. So this this was these were some of the major uh, you know differences that I saw with regard to class, gender, and age. All right. So since you talk about state support and also uh, paid care homes, I would want to know a little bit about, you know, the relationship between the two. Do you think that because state support was much higher in Canada than in India, there were fewer care homes there compared to India or is it the opposite or is there no relationship? No, there is a huge relationship. I, uh, I will say that uh, because of huge state support, a lot of older people can choose to live in their own houses and uh, pay for assisted living or you know paid caregiving services in the house uh, so uh, that 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 is definitely there in canada that you know one can choose to do whatever one wants to because of uh, higher state support which is much higher as compared to the financial support that older indians had um i don't i will not be able to tell you uh, how many older elder care residences are really there in Canada because I also did not get any permission to do any interviews in any elder care residences. I didn't even visit. So I really do not have any knowledge about that. Like whatever knowledge I have is basically based on the literature I've read. I've 
and I did not have any personal uh, experience. Um, in comparison, of course, older elder care residences are coming up in India. It's not that high in number. They are coming up because even today, even though they are coming up and they are, as you know, a lot of people view it as an alternative caregiving arrangement, but it is still seen as a very alien concept. And uh, mostly older people prefer to live in their own houses. And, uh, in, you know, because it's kind of, there's a lot of stigma also associated with moving into an elder care residence. So because of that, uh, even if, you know, there might be certain facilities, people would opt, prefer not to shift. That That is also there. But um, there, there is also one more thing, and that I have not really explored in my book, but uh, is a very important concept, and that is uh, hospices, you know, which is end-of-life care. So uh, a lot of uh, elder care who, who are receiving end-of-life care, primarily not just in Canada, but across the West, North America, they do move to, you know, uh, private-funded hospices or the good hospice services, which are actually very underdeveloped. Like palliative care is very underdeveloped in India. So in that sense, I think that state support matters and plays a very big role. It offers more choices to the older people as compared to the ones that who do not receive any form of state support. Right, right. So uh, I would also want to know that what would be some other sociological works on aging that you would recommend to our listeners? Yes. Uh, so firstly, I would recommend uh, the Professor Sarah Lamb's work. Uh, she has uh, she is a faculty member at Brandeis University. I'm hugely influenced by her work and uh, she has written extensively on older care practices in India, primarily in Kolkata, where her field, you know, where she did her field work. Uh, her names, uh, the names of the book are White Saris and Sweet Mangoes. Then uh, she later, she also did a comparison between India and US, and that was also one of the inspirations behind my book. You know, I was very influenced by her work, and the name of the book is, uh, I think, um, "Aging uh, and the Diaspora: uh, Aging in India and the Diaspora: Cosmopolitan Practices in India and Abroad." That one, her latest book, uh, "Successful Aging is a Contemporary Obsession," that is also a very important book, and it really critiques the. North American biomedical model of successful aging, which is, you know, gradually being adopted across the globe. So that those are some of the books. Uh, Lawrence Cohen's uh, No Aging in India, an excellent uh, contribution to medical anthropology, social gerontology. Uh, these are so, uh, and also, uh, though I didn't really talk about elder abuse, but uh, another very important topic, and Professor Mala Kapoor Shankar Das, who uh, works, uh, you know, on, a, on who looks at the intersections between policy abuse and aging, uh, has really made very important contributions. And she and her uh, her latest book, I think, is uh, aging and social responses and policies in India. But she's also coming up with a very good book on end of life care practices. And uh, so these are some of the books I would recommend for the readers, yeah. for listeners. Thank you. Thank you, Jagriti. Your research sounds fascinating, but as we know, every research is fraught with its own set of challenges. So I would also want to share some of the challenges that you faced in doing this research. Yes. Um, I Okay, I'll just say that, you know, there were different challenges across different fields. So, for example, uh, when I started doing interviews, um, of older people who had just lost their spouse 
I really had to wait a while and get permission first from the adult child because it would be very hard to talk about, you know, uh, loss and how. Uh, and, and so I really waited for like a year and a half. And uh, I really got in touch much later when I realized that, you know, they would be in a position to talk. So I think waiting and time and patience are very important virtues one really needs to adopt while doing fieldwork. Similarly, I was rejected multiple times by multiple institutional settings to do any kind of data collection, you know, in elder care residences. And that was also a very big challenge. And I really had to, I ultimately went through an NGO, which, you know, got me permission. Otherwise, I was just not able to make <laughs> any progress. Uh, similarly, um, family setting, again, it, it was a major challenge because, you know, there were so many family members and they had so many questions. And... Uh, getting each of them at different points in time, you know, their different work schedules, meeting them in different, many of them didn't want to do the interviews in homes and they wanted to meet me in public spaces. So reaching there, navigating those places, again, they, they were, you know, major challenges in themselves. And uh, uh, I, I uh, did not speak the language, which I learned later, and that was really very helpful. And, uh, but yeah, so doing fieldwork in different contexts also comes with multiple language barriers particularly in India, where, you know, people speak so many different languages. So those were all major challenges in India. Canada, I think it took me a while to get used to the country because uh, I was jet lagged. I was, uh, uh, you know, I didn't know too many people. I didn't know how to go about. I didn't even know how to approach. So um, I'm very grateful to, uh, you know, Professor Park, David Parkinson, who introduced me to a lot of older Indians settled in Canada and he really did a lot of hand holding. So I think without a local contact who is very helpful, I would not have been able to make any progress in doing my data collection in a you know in a in a foreign or in a transnational setting. So uh, one thing I learned while doing my data collection is that how challenging the whole process is. And I also realized that my knowledge is very textbookish and one really has to be on the field to really learn the job, you know, and it it, it is um, and also, which is why I later reflected on those questions, that one has to be prepared to, uh, you know, understand and uh, examine how does one own background in terms of caste, caste, age, gender, marital status, nationality, educational status, you know, they also play a very big role in influencing you, you as a researcher on the field. So I think uh, I, I, of course, thought about them much later. But I think those, those were some of my learning experiences and some, you know, like eye-opening experiences for me. Thank you for putting it so, uh, you know, uh, rawly out there. It's interesting to hear about challenges that go into making a research, what it is, and then a published book. Last question, Jagriti. What do you think is the scope of future research in this area? Yeah. So, yes, thank you very much uh, for this very important question. I think more comparative studies need to be done, you know, like India and other, like definitely, bit, 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 you know, like India, Japan and or India and Singapore because India's aging population is actually growing and uh, growing by leaps and bounds. And uh, the caregiving arrangements in India are particularly changing people because of out-migration. Adult children are no longer the sole caregivers anymore so either a lot of people are depending on their older spouses or and with the death of those female spouses 
then paid caregiving is becoming a huge factor, particularly in urban India or followed by elder care residences. So I think uh, this kind of comparative work definitely needs to be done between, you know, different countries. Because a lot of countries, particularly like, for example, Japan, Singapore, and even China, there uh, have they, they have already identified that, you know, aging population is a potential problem and have come up with policies and are doing extensive research. But in India, it still uh, is, you know, India, because it's still seen as a very young country and a demographically youth-oriented country, older people uh, and their needs really need uh, are neglected. So that, I think, needs to be highlighted in terms of policy also. And uh, I also think... Um, there should be more research on end-of-life care practices. It's like a huge field and a huge problem. And I know some, some faculty members are doing it in India, but uh, it really needs to be expanded much more. And of course, comparative you know, work on the, the, those fields will also really help expand the scope of the discipline. Thank you. Thank you, Jagriti. Thank you so much, Ritupadna. Thank you so much for this interview. And I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful that you took out the time to do it. I, and it was, it was a lovely opportunity. Thank you again. Thank you, Jagriti. I hope our viewers enjoy listening to you and learn a lot about the sociological process and context in variations in aging.